In 58 AD, the Christian church in Rome found itself deeply divided between her Jewish and Gentile members. To help guide the church towards unity, St. Paul wrote the longest of his 13 letters to God's beloved in Rome. You could argue that Paul's lengthiest letter was the most important letter ever written. Not just by Paul, by anyone, ever. The most prolific of New Testament authors, the second most influential character in the Christian tradition, an anti-Jesus zealot and Pharisee who changed course on the road to Damascus to become a primary architect of the Christian faith. He wrote a letter to the fledgling church that would help define her beliefs early on and continues to help define who we are as Jesus' people today. It's a profoundly historical book written out of a deep personal understanding of and relationship with God. Romans, the most important letter ever written. Hey friends, open your Bibles to Job chapter 22. If you aren't in a place where you have access to a traditional Bible, as always, you can take your digital device and you can open up the version, or it's also called the Bible app and we've already uploaded all the notes and scriptures for you to be able to use wherever it is that you're watching us from. I love you. I'm so grateful and I'm so excited that you're a part of the family of Life Church and beyond. Now, I don't know about you, but I have been loving this series. I've loved digging deeply into the scriptures and dissecting the life, story, and journey of Paul. And it's kind of taken a life of its own. I mean, here we are in a series on the book of Romans, and we're four weeks in, and we haven't even looked at Romans chapter 1, verse 1 yet. But it's, it's because I really want you to know Paul. I really want you to understand and ultimately love him in the way I've come to love him. This melancholy, borderline morose man who, in spite of all his failures and flaws and deficiencies, literally changed the world. So because of that, I just don't want to rush through this, which is why we've been giving you the option of these additional learning opportunities that we've been calling Ask Pastor Sean, where you can get on a Zoom call for an hour and you can hear additional content that made the research but didn't make it into the message. And we give you an opportunity to ask questions about the message. And we're doing it again this week, same time, same place, 8 o'clock Tuesday night, just RSVP on our website. Today, though, let's continue a teaching I started last week that we're calling When. Let's pray. God, we love you. We honor you. We're grateful to you. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for what you do. Thank you for your love and your mercy and your persistence and your patience and your calling. Thank you, God, that no matter how fast or how far we run, we cannot outpace your reach. So today, God, I pray that our hearts would be tenderized, our minds would be changed, and that our lives would become different, that we would become less, as you become more, in Jesus' name, amen. So we left off last week with Barnabas coming to find Paul so that they can go to the Syrian capital of Antioch to investigate the rumors of these Gentiles coming to Jesus and ultimately so they could teach those new believers what it means to be Jesus' people. And this wasn't some insignificant town. Antioch was one of the largest, most significant, most influential cities in all of the Roman world. 
It was an incredible example of planning and architecture, a testimony to the supremacy of Greek civilization enhanced by Roman peace and Roman prosperity. And like all capital cities of that time, it was a collision of splendor and poverty. Beautiful, broad, colonnaded thoroughfares, an elaborate imperial palace, magnificent temples to various gods, an 80,000-seat hippodrome where the novel Ben-Hur places its chariot race. And on top of that, square mile upon square mile of these shoddy, shady, overcrowded back streets. It's in this environment, in this city, that Paul and Barnabas stay for the next year, preaching to and teaching these new believers. It's actually here in Antioch that Jesus' followers are called Christians for the very first time. And it was actually intended to be a term of insult or a term of abuse. But these believers, they, they took it as a term of endearment. They took it as a compliment that they could bear the name of Christ, which comes from the Greek word Christos. It means anointed one, and it was used as a translation of the Hebrew word for Messiah. So in essence, the term Christian, it means follower of the Messiah or follower of the anointed one. And for these people, for them to be dubbed as followers of the Messiah was quite the turn of events. Because Antiochians, they were infamous across the empire. They were known as filthy and foul, and they had that unruly reputation largely because of sexual practices that even ancient Rome rated excessive. Just outside the city stood the expansive sacred grove of Daphne dominated by an enormous statue of the god Apollo. And in these groves, hundreds of prostitutes congregated every day to give their bodies to any man who cared to worship the goddess of love. But inside the city, y'all, something miraculous was happening. The message of Jesus was sweeping through the streets, and every Sunday these early believers were crowding into homes in every neighborhood, rich and poor alike, so they could celebrate the day of the resurrection, which they called the Lord's Day. The Jews among them, they would have already attended synagogue on the Saturday, but many of them decided to double up and they attended these Christian church services. And one of the sparks of this Jesus movement was a leader named Simon of Cyrene. He's the man the Gospels tell us had been grabbed by the Romans and made to carry the cross of Jesus. His life was, of course, forever impacted by his encounter with Jesus, and he only fled to Antioch because Paul in his early days was wreaking havoc on the church. So his forgiveness and his acceptance, it fed Paul's soul and, and Saul's spirit. In Antioch, Paul found a home and friends and time to heal the scars and strains of the lonely, desolate, disappointing decade he'd just been forced to endure. On top of that, it brought him back into the mainstream of the Christian church. Paul loved Antioch, and he loved its people. Sometime after Paul and Barnabas arrived, a group of Jesus followers from the Jerusalem church visited Antioch with a message from the Lord. They declared that a famine was on its way. Rather than responding with fear or panic, though, the Antioch Christians accepted this as an opportunity to prove their place in the church family, and they started gathering grain while the market remained stable. And it wasn't for themselves, but instead, it was in preparation for the day their brothers in Jerusalem, who drought would hit the hardest, would need it the most. 
Many of the Antioch believers were poor, but they all pooled together and put everything that they could into the famine fund week by week and appointed men from among them to travel throughout their region to buy whatever grain they could afford wherever they could find it stored. Paul, he found great joy in leading this effort. He was eager to forge links between the churches of Antioch and Jerusalem. Just had been prophesied, drought hit, the harvest failed, and famine hit the church in Jerusalem. So in 46 AD, Paul and Barnabas were designated by the church in Antioch to take the famine relief to Jerusalem. Paul decided to take an assistant with them on that trip, a young convert named Titus, to whom Paul would later address one of his epistles and who would serve as a living witness years later at the Jerusalem Council. And his choice of Titus for this trip was deliberate. Titus was a pure-blooded Greek and had therefore obviously been uncircumcised. As Paul took him into the heart of Judaism, he would, uh, he would establish the principle that a Gentile could be a Christian without needing to convert to Judaism. And it was groundwork for his thesis of salvation by grace through faith later in Romans. But Paul also had a more personal, more private agenda in Jerusalem. He wanted to go over his thesis with Peter and the other church leaders to see if any detail in his teachings conflicted with the words or works of Jesus. And if it did, he wanted to stop himself immediately. Even in all his brilliance, Paul was teachable and willing to submit himself to authority. The church leaders, they affirmed his teaching and assigned him to the Gentiles, just as Peter had been assigned to the Jews. So 14 years after his conversion, Paul's apprenticeship was finally over and he was finally accepted as an apostle. It was a flip from his earlier attempt in the previous decade where the Jerusalem Jews had refused to embrace him, but he's now welcomed. The famine and his involvement in the relief efforts had opened their eyes, their ears, and their hearts. And so now, at 44, although estranged from his family and excommunicated from his hometown, with little to show for himself, he could easily have been considered a failure, but the years ahead, they would be glorious. And they would be arduous. From Jerusalem, he would lead teams of Greek-speaking Jews to the unreached, untouched, uttermost parts of the empire. And they would be joined by pagan converts to carry the message of Jesus farther than had ever been accomplished or had even been imagined before. All winter after Paul and his companions returned from Jerusalem, a great sense of expectation and energy buzzed throughout the church in Antioch. And it was during a time of prayer and fasting that the Holy Spirit revealed his next step for them. Luke records the message that the church received. God said, set Barnabas and Paul apart for me. I want them to do the work to which I have called them. The apostles would not be rogue freelancers. They'd be representatives and extension of the Antioch Christians. Paul, he had found his pocket of people. And on their missions, they would be accompanied by Barnabas' nephew, John Mark, who had previously been the Apostle Peter's personal scribe and had been so moved by their famine relief that he accompanied them from Jerusalem. The three missionaries, they, 
shipped out from Seleucia in the beginning of March, 47 AD, for the easy run to Cyprus. It was an obvious choice since it had been home to Barnabas and already had a substantial Jewish population. The apostles, they landed at Salamis, where the book of Acts says they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John Mark assist them. Next, they worked their way around the southern shore of the island, staying a short time at each town, constantly leading people to Jesus. They crossed the low wooded hills and circumvented the bay where in the Iliad, Homer declared the goddess of love Aphrodite had emerged from the foam fully grown. They avoided her famous temple as well, since like in Daphne, prostitution counted for religious devotion. They instead descended upon the Roman city of Nupaphis, the capital city and the best harbor on the southwest coast. They immediately began preaching the hope of Jesus and people joyfully responded. To their surprise, they received a summons, an invitation to lecture before the governor of Cyprus, Sergius Paulus, his palace prominently stood above the city. As they walked up the ornate brick pathway to the palace, the sun on this late spring day, it gleamed on the gilded statues of gods above the granite gates and reflected, almost radiated off the flawless, meticulously polished golden helmets of the legionnaires who raised their spears in salute to honored guests. Governor Paulus, he was known for having a brilliant scientific mind. In fact, in his book, Natural History, Pliny the Elder referred to him as an authority on the topic. He was also known for having a taste for speculation and for superstition, which Paul and Barnabas would realize when they saw among his entourage a notorious renegade Jew with the repugnant, despicable name Bar-Jesus, which meant son of Jesus or son of of a savior. He presented himself as a prophet of the living God and also as an astrologer who also went by the name Elemis, which means magician or corrupter. So as Sergius Paulus was sitting on his throne in the spacious audience hall with a breeze gently blowing through the marble pillars which gave glimpses of the deep blue bay and the white town below, he asked to hear what the apostles had been teaching. Soon he was listening with great pleasure, and so they were in full course, each playing off and adding to the other, when abruptly, in defiance of protocol, the corrupter Elemas, he interrupted. He launched a venomous attack, not just on them, but on the message of Jesus. Luke later recorded his intentions in the book of Acts, saying he was seeking to turn the governor away from the faith, and he did so with all the vigor of a man who recognized his influence. It was about to be overturned. And interestingly, Paul withstood it for a few minutes, praying inwardly, indignant, struggling to master his anger. But he saw right into Elemis's soul, recognizing him for exactly what he was. Then fueled by urgency of the situation and the struggle for the governor's salvation, Paul locked eyes with this false prophet. Filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, he said, You son of the devil, 
You enemy of all goodness, full of all deceit and every cunning. Isn't it time you stopped making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? Look now, the hand of the Lord, it strikes you. And for a time, you will be blind and unable to see the light of the sun. At once, sight flickered, then faded, then failed. Governor Paulus, he was astounded. and Instantly, he was convinced that what he had heard about these men, it wasn't speculation. They spoke of and with a unique truth and power. And the book of Acts says when he saw what had happened, he became a believer for he was astounded at the teaching about the Lord. For Paul and Barnabas though, this incident, it was a sign that God would undoubtedly open a door to the Gentiles. And it was at this time that Barnabas humbly and joyfully conceded his leadership. He recognized that the Holy Spirit had fashioned Paul both by background and by training to lead them on into the unknown. And from this point forward, they're no longer referred to as Barnabas and Paul, but instead as Paul and Barnabas. They left the capital city and set sail for another short run northwest to the coast of Pamphylia. And now, at last, they were truly pioneers. Pamphylia laid far west of any territory that Paul may have touched in the hidden years, and no Christian had ever made it that far. Thus, in his late 40s, an age when most men settled down, Paul began his toughest travels. And the task, it would be immense. Against him stood the contemporary climate of thought, the great philosophies in the leading pagan religions of the world. Suddenly, the depth and breadth of his Tarsian education made sense. Their ship, it sailed into the Gulf of Italia, and they worked their way a few miles up the Sestris River to the lesser harbor near the walled city of Perga, a steamy inland center nestled beneath the perilous cliffsides of its Acropolis. Despite any objections, Paul had no intention of stopping. He was determined to press on the work it laid inland in the Roman province of Galatia, beyond a barrier of mountains stretched across the narrow plain, steeper and more fierce than the eastern Tarsus mountains in Tarsus, and more terrifying than any of the summits known to the Cypriot Barnabas or the Judean John Mark. It was here. Fearful of the challenge that lay ahead and re resentful of the fact that Barnabas had surrendered his leadership to Paul that John Mark stopped. He turned around and he returned to Jerusalem. It left Paul feeling abandoned and betrayed and it opened a wound in him that took years to heal and would ultimately lead to the destruction of his relationship with Barnabas when years later they would have irreconcilable differences again over John Mark. Over that second incident, they would never speak again. It was in this moment, with this movement, that John Mark, he forfeited his right to move forward. He failed to see the greatest move of God the world had ever seen. And he fractured the foundation of a relationship, not just in his own life, but in the lives of others. And it was all because of fear and a lack of submission to authority. And I wonder, how many of you are living in that right now? Either one or the other or both. If you are, can I tell you, there's only one solution. The book of Job tells us, submit yourself to God and be at peace with him. In this way, prosperity 
it will come to you. Will you do that today? Would you close your eyes? Friend, I don't know where you are. I don't know what you're struggling with. I don't know your background, and I don't know the baggage that you carry. But what I can tell you is wherever you're at, I can relate. Friend, there came a time where I was so bogged down that I felt like no one could accept me. No one could love me. And it was in that moment that I was introduced to a concept called salvation. You know, at its core, salvation simply is submitting yourself to God, submitting your sin, submitting your shame, submitting yourself. And so today, if you're watching this and you feel like you're unacceptable, you feel like you're unlovable, can I tell you that the only thing that will change that will be surrender. It will be to stop and submit yourself to God. And so we're gonna give you an opportunity to do that today, to receive the Lord as your personal savior. What those words mean is when you ask someone to be your Lord, you ask them to have rule over you. When you ask someone to be your savior, you're admitting that you need to be rescued and you can't do it yourself. So if you're watching and you say, Sean, I need to be rescued and I need to give the leadership of my life and the control over my life to God, here's what we're gonna do. I'm gonna pray a few words in a prayer and then I'm gonna pause. And when I pause, if you repeat those after me and you mean them in your heart, the Bible says you will be saved. And you'll start a new journey away from where you are and who you are toward where God wants you to be and who God wants you to be, which is more like Jesus. And so today, if you need to receive Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, will you pray this after me? Will you say, Jesus, I'm a sinner, but I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? Will you come into my life? Will you be my Lord? And will you be my Savior? In Jesus' name, amen. Friend, if you prayed that prayer, you have just begun the greatest, most adventurous journey of your life. And we want to walk that with you. And so if you prayed that prayer, would you click that link that says you're raising your hand to receive Jesus? And we would love the opportunity to connect with you and to help you become a fully devoted follower of Christ. But we're not done. I wonder if you're here and you're watching this and you say, Sean, I'm a Jesus guy or I'm a Jesus girl, but I'm guilty like John Mark of living in fear or I'm guilty of living inside a lack of submission. If that's you, I wanna pray for you because it's a dangerous place for you to live. And so God, for my friends who are on this, people who are living their lives in fear, God, we're in such unprecedented times and it's so easy for us to live our lives in fear. And so God, today, I come against that in Jesus' name. You have not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. So today I pray that. God, I pray that you'd give us a willingness to submit and surrender ourselves to you, to submit and surrender to authority, and that you would bless us in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, I love you. Will you worship with us?